Hello, g'day, and welcome to Party in China, Series 2, Episode 24, the final instalment to bear the subtitle Party in Japan. I'm sorry if I sound a little bit distracted, I just wrote this episode. Again, none of this is in the original book, available now on Amazon, which also has lots of stuff that's not in the podcast. But while I was writing this episode, I listened to a great album, Ms. Murphy's Dirty Soul, and there's a song, Express Yourself, with the lyric... It's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing, it's what you're doing when you're doing what you look like you're doing. I've got that in my head, and I cannot work it out. I'd hoped that Dan and I would have a fun father-son day together exploring Osaka, but he was called back to Kyoto to work at Conversation Corner in a cafe where customers get to practice their English skills over a cup of coffee or green tea. But having met teachers in China with almost incomprehensible English, like Manny the Pakistani and Wiki slash Vicky, I knew Dan would be a boon to any kids in any Asian classroom, and I encouraged him to earn an online teaching English as a foreign language certificate and get a proper job in a real school, which he soon did and taught for the next several years. In return, he encouraged me to leave China and come and teach in Japan, as he'd been reading my increasingly insane and incensed emails and was frankly worried about my mental state. We did discuss some local opportunities, but I felt that I'd be crowding him and Yuki if I moved to Kyoto. I did like the look of Osaka, though, and thought I'd fit right in after witnessing the drunkenness and debauchery over Halloween. But I still had a job and friends in Ganyu, and would feel bad if I didn't return there. On the other hand, I had no job but many friends in Sydney and would feel great if I did return there. Decisions. Decisions. Dan and I had been going to visit the Osaka Aquarium to see the whale shark, the largest fish on the planet. Even though I'd had mixed feelings, I'd always really wanted to see a whale shark. But I didn't like the idea of such a magnificent creature in captivity. So I accompanied my son, admittedly a slightly less magnificent creature, back to Kyoto, partly to avoid my big fish dilemma, but mainly to wring as much personal time as possible out of my short visit. Somehow the Intercity Express turned into a subway train when it plunged into a tunnel. Damn clever, these Japanese. And we bypassed the main station to terminate below the busy Kyoto CBD. Dan hurried off to work and I sauntered off in the general direction of... away. Which soon brought me back to the Imperial Palace. A sign hanging on the iron fence announced that the palace would be open the following day for tours. Cool. Dan and Yuki couldn't believe my luck. The palace gates only swing open for tourists once, perhaps twice a year. For several hours, I wandered up and down dozens of little alleys, sometimes popping into a park or a shop 
or uh, oh, what do you call those places? Oh yeah, bars. I popped into several bars. Some were just too quaint to walk past. Lots were entirely constructed of wood with low roofs and doors which I had to stoop to enter. I was universally welcomed with delight by staff and other customers, although not always expressed in English I could understand, and was invariably required to tell them my name, where I was from, why I was there. But I soon learned not to mention China. It had a dampening effect on the conversation. One time when I said I was from Australia, a middle-aged man pointed proudly at his chest and roared, I am champion of Gold Coast. But I was unable to ascertain the champion of what. I've spent loads of time on the Goldie, but I've never seen that guy's statue anywhere. It's an international resort destination, so maybe he won a game of golf there on holiday. I myself was once victorious in a game of miniature golf there but you don't hear me crowing about it. Which reminds me of my nemesis, the Devil's Rooster back in Ganyu. <coughs> One of the best things about being in Japan was being out of earshot, away from that bloody bird and sleeping soundly and long. I also really enjoyed the complete absence of people spitting in the street. I felt I'd rediscovered civilization and that my dementia was receding like an ebb tide. Sunday was both Dan and Yuki's day off, so it was declared a tourist day and we would do touristy things. So the morning was spent at Kiyomitsu Dera, a fabulous temple high on a hill. Actually, maybe a mountain. It took a long while to walk up there partly because of the throngs of people all making the same pilgrimage. Japanese crowds are much more polite than Chinese crowds, but there are still too many people trying to go in the same direction on the same paths, and I become frustrated when I'm forced to take teeny tiny steps for too long. At least I had a nice view of the surrounding forest as the sea of black hair was lower than my shoulder level. There were, of course, plenty of taller tourist heads here and there, but not enough to stop me seeing anything. The temple was spectacular, very impressive and worth enduring the crowds, but I must have complained about having to endure them again on the way down, because Yuki led us off the main paths and we descended the hill along some thin tracks and ancient moss-covered steps. Yeah, that was great. That was more like it for me. Next, we made our way to the Imperial Palace and entered an even larger, even slower moving throng, cramming itself through the huge iron spiked gates. Yuki had booked our time of arrival, so God knows what chaos would have ensued without that level of organisation. The palace is a large collection of buildings constructed over various dynasties, so in different styles and of different eras, but all impressive. The best part for me was the murals, giant paintings illustrating the times and interests of whichever emperor, prince or concubine inhabited or held court in that particular room. 
Our walking tour included detours out into the lovely landscape gardens and beside the tranquil ponds and connecting waterways. I found myself agreeing that I was very fortunate to have hit upon one of the few occasions the palace welcomed sightseers. Neither Dan nor Yuki had been there before either. After the royal tour, Yuki wanted to go shopping. Mm, usually not my thing. But I was in a new place seeing new things with my son and his new wife. So I didn't care what we did. Besides, if I was going back to China, I'd be there for nine months. So I should find some new clothes and shoes while in Japan. I was hopeful of finding suitable sizes because after all, sumo wrestlers can't wear loincloths all the time. Kyoto's main shopping area is along Shijo, uh, 4th Avenue, a busy, bustling precinct, but with not a single shop with sumo-sized clothing. The more interesting places were off the main drag inside a series of connecting arcades, and my favourite was a gift store, which had a crucifix with Santa Claus instead of Christ. That place was closed, or I would have bought it for sure. In another store, I did almost buy a pistol. Well, a replica pistol. What's known as a BB gun in the States, Aussies would call it a slug gun. Dan had taken me to that shop because he was advocating the sniper assassination of Beelzebub's bird back in Ganyu, and it was an appealing thought. A swift, mostly silent way to solve my problem. And, as my uncle was a marine sniper in Vietnam, it'd be continuing the family tradition. Yeah, sort of. But I decided against it as the pistol was very realistic and I didn't want to face either Australian or Chinese customs officers with that thing in my luggage. Surprisingly, since we were shopping, I was enjoying myself. But two things were mildly irritating. And this is petty because they were both displays of respect. Firstly, Yuki kept asking me for permission to go into a store or cross a road or buy a snack. As I said, respectful, but quite annoying after a while. Although I still liked being called Patisan. Secondly, all the bowing continued to make me uncomfortable. Dan had even given me bowing lessons. Hands by your side, bend from the waist, keep the back and neck straight. The lower you go, the more respect you show. So try and go just as low as the other person. And never nod, that's very rude. But I still found myself either forgetting to bow altogether or quickly nodding to try and get the whole awkward thing over with. So I was probably quite offensive. When we went out to eat that night, a teenage boy leaving his table accidentally backed into me. And when he turned around and saw me, he bowed so low, I swear his nose touched his knees. Dan said, wow, that's mad respect, making me feel bad that I'd once again only nodded in return. And by the way, all this bowing can be dangerous. Several times when I'd be about to cross at an intersection, a car would be waiting to turn the corner and I'd stop and wave them on, as you do. 
The drivers would bow low over the wheel and continue. Now, they couldn't possibly see where they were going, but they wanted to show gratitude and respect. But back to the shopping, where my next Japanese experience was a big show of disrespect. We'd abandoned the arcades for the main road, Shijo, and the bigger stores. Yuki asked my permission to enter one of them and Dan went with her, so I stood out there among the crowds on my own for a few minutes. I could hear some sort of parade coming my way, so made my way to the curb to see what was going on. Lots of police cars drove slowly past, lights flashing but no sirens. Then a couple of buses full of coppers, one of which stopped close by, and the cops flowed out of the doors, all carrying big sticks, same as the ones I'd seen in Osaka. They spread out along the street, standing at attention in the gutter with their backs to the crowd. Yes, this was getting interesting. Even more interesting was when several strangers came up to me, bowed low, and apologised in English on behalf of Japan. But no one said why. When the parade arrived, it was a demonstration. Cars and buses crawling along, hundreds marching, others standing in convertibles with megaphones, leading loud chants and cheers. For some reason, I was attracting a lot of stares from both the protesters and the crowds. The protesters looked angry, and the shoppers looked worried. Then Yuki hurried up behind me, took my arm, and tried to steer me away. I asked her what was going on, and she shamefacedly told me that this was a political demonstration by a party who wanted all foreigners summarily deported from Japan. I gently broke her grip, having decided to explain the idiocy of xenophobia to the nearest demonstrator with a megaphone, by demonstrating how his megaphone would fit up his... But stepping out into the street, I was instantly surrounded by half a dozen policemen. In the seconds it took me to confirm that I couldn't take another pace in any direction, another half-dozen cops completed a second ring around me. Over the top of their caps, I called out to the demonstrators and gestured, inviting any or all of them to come within arm's reach, so I could further elucidate my argument in a more personal manner. But the outer ring of coppers then stepped slightly further away from me, just outside said arm's reach, so I wasn't going to be elucidating anything to anybody. Nonetheless, an older policeman with lots of shiny stuff on his shoulders appeared and yelled orders. Several cops approached the protesters I'd been yelling at, taking out their handcuffs. Others opened the back door of the bus they'd arrived on, which I now noticed had bars on all the windows. Faced with imminent arrest, the slow pace of the protest sped up remarkably, and the cops all followed along. Not one of them said a word to me, but several bowed before leaving. Soon the street was reopened to traffic. Yuki was mortified with embarrassment over the incident, and I don't think my aggressive behaviour helped. So we all went back to the flat 
And then Dan and I went out to leave her alone to recover, which was when my favourite Japanese moment occurred. We were crossing a major road in a thunderstorm when an ambulance approached, siren blaring. So Dan and I stopped halfway across, huddled under an umbrella together. The ambulance driver slowed briefly to make sure we weren't about to walk out in front of him and then accelerated away, saying something over the public address system as he did so. Dan laughed so much it took him a while to get sufficient breath to explain that the Ambo had been talking to me, thanking the honoured guest for letting him pass. For my last night in Japan, Yuki asked me what I'd like to do, and I said, listen to some live music, jazz or blues, something cool. So she went online and found a club in an area of town I hadn't yet explored, to the north and a block or so from the river. I can't find it now and don't remember the name, but it was a small place, so crowded at first I didn't think we'd even fit in. But then staff scurried from somewhere, made people move and rearranged the tables in front of the stage to make room for one more. Front and centre. We were so close I could have put my feet up on the stage. I know that because I did, but only as a joke. I hope the singer and her jazz trio realised that. I'm pretty sure she did because she flirted outrageously, crooning love songs directly at me, staring into my eyes as if we were the only two there. She was extraordinary looking. A tall Eurasian in a fantabulous low-cut sparkly blue evening gown, which she could have worn on the Oscars red carpet. It was gorgeous. She asked me what songs I'd like to request, chatted to me between numbers, bent and held the microphone for me to sing a few lines with her every now and then, which was when I got a really nice look at her uh, evening gown. The rest of the audience also enjoyed her show and my part in the performance. Applause and cheers were loud and people kept buying me drinks. Single malt whiskies kept appearing in front of me, as if by magic. I had a bloody great time. At one point, Yuki leant across and spoke into my ear. Partisan, you are the king of this club. But she was wrong. I was the king of Kyoto. I'm Party Parslow. Thanks for listening. Will the next episode be party in China, though? Perhaps party in Australia? Or party still in Japan? It will all be made clear. All except it's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing. It's what you're doing when you're doing what you look like you're doing. I cannot work that out. Listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.